Cats and Cures with Lindy Burns. It's great to have you along for Ritz and Cures. My name is Lindy Burns and joining me as he does, well, he's, when he's not swanning his way to Europe, is Melbourne lawyer Bill O'Shea. Hello, Bill. Hi, Lindy. Good to be here from someone who wasn't here last week. That's, That's true. coming a bit strong. I wasn't actually in Europe, <clears throat> however, mm. So, but mm. I take your point. We got, we got a jingle last week too Did from you? Casey Vanetta. Oh, he's good like that. He composed a jingle, yeah, but yeah. it unfortunately had the name of our guest, so we can't use it again. Oh. <laughs> Unless we have the guest on every week. That's hilarious. Nick Carr is here, Melbourne GP. Hello, Nick. I aspire to swanning. Do you? Yes. I don't seem to swan at all these days. Can you please try and swan somewhere? <laughs> I'll, I'll go to Bill for lessons. Will you? No. He is the best Steve swanner. Allen, you. Yeah. Steve Allen swanned he, off again. Well, he's swanning right now, isn't he? Uh, we've got a very special guest tonight speaking from a position of uh, personal experience in something that she is now working professionally. Her name is Lib Haywood, and she works in an area amongst other things, of psycho-oncology, and she'll explain exactly what that is and how it came about to be her major part, her major area of specialisation. But first up, we're looking at the law in Australia on withdrawing medical treatment. And we're going to ask whether consent is necessary to withdraw medical treatment and can a family member or can a patient themselves actually refuse to get any more, any more treatment? And it's off the back of the, the case in the UK of a little baby called Charlie, whose parents are now in court fighting the London hospital that wants to turn off life support. So let's get the story so far. So, Bill? Mm. Well, um, Lindy, it's probably well known to a lot of people, this story. It's a very tragic story of a a baby who was born with a rare genetic disorder in August. The baby baby Charlie was born in August last year. It's called mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome, which effectively means that the uh, the baby is on life support, and if that life support was removed, the baby would not survive. Um, there's a, the, the parents um, uh, are disputing the decision of the hospital to withdraw any further uh, treatment, um, given that it's such a, a debilitating disease, um, and nothing can be done in the UK to to cure it. But the parents are saying that they still don't want to have the life support turned off. That's right. Is that right? That's right. And um, in in the United States, um, parents have a much greater right to talk about that and to help uh, participate in that decision. Whereas in England and Australia, um, the decision on withdrawing medical treatment is a medical decision made by the medical team um, of course, made in consultation with a family. I mean, it, it would be very unwise for a medical team to tell a distraught family that I'm about to turn off life support and there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, that would be a recipe for uh, a disputation. I'll come to that in a minute. But, but the the, um, the essential decision is a medical decision um, where the medical team believes that it's in the patient's best interest that they don't offer any further treatment. So because they're not offering anything, there's no consent involved. There's nothing to consent to because they're not offering any treatment. So um, what does a family do, let's say in Victoria, if they disagree with a decision to withdraw medical treatment? Well, there's really only one thing they can do, and that's to go to the Supreme Court. And there are cases in Victoria where families have gone to the Supreme Court and the judge has a right to overturn the medical decision or postpone it or 
ask for some further action to be taken uh, after hearing from the the person who's bringing the action, which is often a relative, close relative, um, and the doctors involved. Right. So, so the court has a jurisdiction. So a bunch of lawyers who are judges, judges who are lawyers, can in fact override a medical decision made by specialist doctors uh, after hearing the evidence. But what would that be based on? Well, um, the court has to act in the best interest of the patient as well. They have to work out. Now, it's not the best interest of the parents, which is can, tends to be the American way these things are decided, but the the judge has to decide what's in the best interest um, of the patient. But doesn't that seem interesting to you that a judge whose expertise is in the law mm. would override somebody whose expertise is in the medical treatment of this patient? Uh, I'm looking at the, the I'm looking at the doctor, doctor myself. Doctor on my left is giving me nasty looks. Yeah. Well, context is everything, and um, you skimmed over this baby's experience. And I think it's important to say that this baby is in Great Ormond Street Hospital, one of the world's leading paediatric specialist hospitals, and there would be doctors there who have dealt with all of the worst possible scenarios with children. They've had this baby there for nearly twelve months. They have made an assessment. There's a whole range of mitochondrial disorders way out of my expertise as a GP. Many of them are very rare and sounds like this baby's particular version of this disorder is really severe. So this baby has not had any meaningful chance to a start in life. And the specialists are saying there is no meaningful chance of, of good life ahead. Or surviving unsupported. So that without mm. continuing life support, this baby would not survive. Mm. So I'd assume that in a situation like this, there's kind of a list of criteria almost that needs to be met in order. This, this, this sort of decision isn't made subjectively, I'd imagine. It's made sort of objectively. And, and that's exactly right. I mean, what they're saying is if we took the breathing apparatus from this baby, this baby wouldn't breathe on its own. They'll be, they'll be looking at what sort of mental activity, what sort of cerebral activity this baby has. And uh, uh, it's, it's a very, very rare thing for a paediatric hospital to say there is really no meaningful hope for this child and we recommend withdrawing supportive treatment. And, and that decision was upheld by the court in uh, London and by the European court. And now the um, family have appealed and said that they would like to take the child to America for experimental treatment. The doctors at Great Ormond Street don't feel that that will uh, achieve very much. Um, and the judge has said to the family, well, you come back and demonstrate to us why this experimental treatment could have some beneficial effect on your baby. And that's where the case is at the moment. It was heard, I think, last week. And the judge obviously can't sit on this case for a long time. There's likely to be a decision in the next few days as to whether the judge will allow the parents to take the child away to the US uh, in contravention, really, of what the hospital wants to do. Because that kind of explains a little bit to me about why the parents would be so insistent upon that treatment being continued or the, the life support that's being continued because I was sort of thinking well, what would what's the point of that if that per, per, that baby is just going to stay in that state you know at infinitum but if there is an if a thought in their head that there is a, a possibility of, of of some cutting edge treatment available to them in another country so to keep that baby alive 
until they can get to a point where they can try that treatment. I mean, I just kind of had to flesh that and part the of the story is, out. And the question is, yeah, how, how credible is that treatment? Yeah. Um, is it just going to cause more distress to the baby to transport the baby over to the US? Um, is it just really not in the baby's best interest, even if it might make the parents feel better about the whole situation? So there's been a huge uh, groundswell of support for the parents, particularly from uh, the Catholic Church, from uh, President Trump, uh, from the Right to Life groups, all, uh, and the Pope himself, actually, um, supporting the, the family's right to take further action to help this child survive. So it's a very interesting uh, matter and, and it really comes back to us. We have the same system here. This case could occur in, in, Australia. Australia, today, in Australia today. So f- from a medical perspective, Nick, wh- why give me some of the reasons why a, a hospital would not want to keep this baby alive on the off chance that i don't know next month something remarkable is revealed as a way of offering up treatment so we really need to turn that around as a general rule hospitals will keep babies alive at any cost and do absolutely everything they can because babies have this incredible power of recovery so the capacity for babies to to do extraordinary things uh, is well known so f- to be in this very unusual situation where a baby has this severe, what this thing called a mitochondrial disorder, and these are essentially from our point of view in medicine, they're untreatable. These are built into the genetics. The, the mitochondria are the powerhouses of the cells. They're what create energy. And when they're not working, and if, you, if it's the mitochondria in critical structures like brains or hearts, that sort of thing, then those organs simply cannot work. And we have no meaningful treatment. So the paediatricians who are dealing with this baby, and of course this is way out of my field of expertise, but these people would have done everything possible, exhausted every avenue for doing something that would be useful to help. And they're saying this baby cannot survive. So that's why it's taken 12 months. So, so they've been actually... This is not tr- going to be a quick decision. They're right, going to do but, yeah. everything uh, possible and 12 months later they're saying there is nothing with, left with nothing that we left. can do. And that is fair to say that hospitals will bend over backwards to give, it, give a baby every chance. Uh, you won't often see that perhaps with older patients who might have a, um, you know, might have a, a let's say a trauma and, ha- and have no brain function. They won't be allowed to go on for 12 months before a decision is taken to withdraw life support. But a baby, as you say, uh, Nick, can in fact improve. And look at premature babies, the way they can, with, a, with careful nurturing, you know, even in the high 20s of gestation, they can now survive, uh, you know, in a, in, in a neonatal ward. So you don't write off babies easily. So, so That's Bill, why what I would you, explain why this has taken as long as it has. So what would happen to this baby here in Victoria if a similar scenario happened? The parents would go, and the parents disagree with the decision, they'd go to the Supreme Court of Victoria and ask the judge to intervene. And the judge would say, well, what do you want me to do? Uh, why do you want me to override the medical decision? What plan have you got? that will be in this baby's best interest, not in your best interest, but this baby's best interest. Now, the parents are saying it's the experimental treatment in the US, in the UK case. But if, a, if, if that wasn't available to a Victorian family, um, it would be very hard for them to say to a judge, well, our, our plan B is this, because there is no plan B. 
Um, and a judge would be loath to override a medical decision on that basis unless there was a clear plan B. Right. So it can't just be a case of we're not ready to face that yet. No. Because it's not about the parent, it's about the patient. Well, I was involved with one of these cases a few years ago with an adult where the decision was taken to remove a tracheostomy, which is a, a, a hole in the trachea, which you can explain better than me, to assist a patient with breathing. And a, a tube goes down and it assists the patient uh, well, I have this tracheostomy to breathe. And the decision was taken to remove the tracheostomy. And the family thought removing the tracheostomy could cause the patient to die because they wouldn't be able to breathe as well as they, if, as if the tracheostomy was still there. And the, unfortunately, the medical team didn't really take the family into their confidence and explain the whole situation. So Friday night at 7 o'clock, we were in the Supreme Court. And, and, and the judge simply said, uh, have you had a family conference? And the... Uh, particular medical practitioners involved said, no, we've just made the decision. We don't need consent. And the judge said, well, back you go. You can have a family conference on Monday and Tuesday and you explain all this to the family and explain why you're doing it and what the risks are. And by the way, here's a cost order. <laughs> Leave that out. <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> uh, and away it went. And there was a proper family conference. And the judge quite rightly said there was a, a defect in the way this thing has been handled he oversaw it from a judge's perspective. Yeah, that makes sense. And not so much a medical perspective. No, that makes sense. So good on the judges. But I mean, when, they, are, they are a check. But when we had the Health Complaints Commissioner uh, here a couple of weeks ago and we said, what's the biggest cause of problems? And she said, communication. And yeah. what you've just said is, again, communication. Completely. Yeah. Completely but if we, so but if, we, if we get away from sort of rarefied cases around babies with very rare and untreatable mitochondrial disorders. Uh, for instance, I've got an elderly woman who has significant breast cancer who has chosen not to have any treatment. And she said, I'm old, I'm going to die of something. I don't want to have more surgery and that sort of stuff. And for 12 months, I've been watching this thing grow and get bigger and it doesn't cause her any pain. She has a right to refuse consent to treatment there. She does. Um, in Victoria at the moment, until the, the new law comes in next year, which we'll talk about on another uh, program, um, it has to be for a current condition. So you can only refuse treatment if you have a condition. I can't refuse treatment now for a dementia that I might get in 10 years' time, for example. <laughs> But if I have cancer now, I can refuse treatment for that disease as it's a current condition. Right. That's a drawback in the current law. And doctors are required to observe that. Otherwise, it's a battery. If they treat you against your wishes and you've signed a refusal of treatment certificate, they have to abide by that. But if you're unconscious, what happens? If you can't express your wishes and you haven't made an advanced care plan, for example... Um, it will, what, what then has to happen is that the, um, the what's called the person responsible, usually a senior family member or a person holding a medical um, or a, a power of attorney for personal services, has to make the decision on behalf of the patient as to whether or not they will, ex, uh, you know, go along with this. Now, if it's withdrawal, as I say, the only role for that person would be to go to court on behalf of the unconscious patient. There's no need, or there's no right for them to consent because nothing's being offered. So it's a, a misunderstood issue. You know, a lot of people think, well, if you're going to withdraw consent treatment, you better get our agreement. You've got to get the family together. Well, it's a good idea to get the family agreement, to get, help the family understand why there are no other options. 
Um, but at the end of the day, um, the best interest of the patient prevail over the over the grief of the family. What, what if that? What if it's the family that wants to withdraw the treatment? I, I mean, in terms mm. of well, I'm it's thinking blood blood transfusions for mm. particular religious organisations mm. that don't like that to happen. But as a, as a medical practitioner, you go, well, the transfusion's pretty damned mm. important. So how does it work there? Well. Uh, um, Children uh, who are, who belong to a particular, say, Jehovah's Witness, can their their uh, blood can be supplied over against the wishes of the parents. But an adult who is a card carrying member with a no blood card, uh, the medical team would have to respect the decision not to provide blood. So they have a right that's effectively a, a refusal of treatment where it comes to uh, using somebody else's blood in their body. But there's no power for any patient in this country or anywhere in the UK to direct doctors as to what treatment they should have. So you can consent to a treatment that's offered, but you can't require a doctor to give you the treatment. So, for example, you could, a doctor might say to you, you've been on dialysis for six years. I can see no benefit for you continuing to have dialysis. It's massively inconvenient. It's causing you distress, blah, blah, blah. We are not going to continue to offer dialysis. Now, the result of that, of course, is a fairly rapid onset of kidney failure and death. Now, there's not much a patient can do when that offer of treatment is withdrawn. I hope, that's, a th- court. I hope that's an entirely theoretical case that you I'm, bring there, is it, Bill? He's, I'm he's giving you an example. Yes. That, uh, you cannot require a doctor to do what you want uh, because it's for the doctor, the medical team, to offer the treatment and for you to accept it. That's I want to just it works. quickly go to a call if we have some time. Andrew's been very patient with us. Hi, Andrew. How are you? We're great. What would you like to say in this context? Oh, 20 years ago, I had a delightful daughter named Blanche, who at the age of two got lower meningitis and ended up comatose, vegetative, tube-fed, and four years later, died in a sleep. Lionel Lubitz, paediatric surgeon in charge at the Children's Hospital, along with Peter Campbell and others, did a magnificent job of care, courtesy and interaction throughout her life and after her death. They were all, all the people at the Children's Hospital, most highly interactive with courtesy and care and kindness. How much difference does that make to that situation, Andrew? Claire, my daughter, is a doctor at Mildura Base Hospital. The influence of the skilled surgical care she saw as a young child while going to that hospital and going to the school at that hospital influenced her life. Mm -hmm. Her brother also saw how wonderful it was. Her younger brother, Edward, realised as a toddler that her older sister, who couldn't move, couldn't brush flies off her face, and whenever she was home, he adopted the caring role of carer. Mm -hmm. Now, with all these things, you must accept skilled medicos, explanation and discipline I'm fortunate. My father was a doctor in Melbourne for 40 years. He loved his patients, and that taught me a great respect for the medical profession. Sadly, people don't respect ambulancemen, policemen, doctors, or others. I think, as far as the legal aspect of things go, it is very rare for these scenarios to be followed to that stage. I think that what people do as nurses, as cleaners at hospitals. I can remember the great bonding friendship Claire had with a cleaner who was a foreigner, I think a Yugoslav, at the Geelong Hospital, who always went out of her way to give Claire delightful, 
interaction positivenesses 20 years ago about her sister. All these things are so important. What we must realise is how lucky we are to live in Australia. Our medical aspects are actually very clever and skilled. Actually, that's a really good point that you raised there, Andrew. I think... I, I, Absolutely I, is. And yeah. this is an extreme case. This UK case um, really is something where the doctors have decided this life support cannot continue for the next uh, uh, you know, foreseeable future because this baby will need this for life and will have no response. So it's a very unusual case. And I think, as Nick said before, the effort is made here to keep babies and young children going for as long as possible. I, d- I just want to acknowledge what Andrew said earlier about the, on that phone call about the other staff at the hospital. And th- this is a very common thing for people who have long stays in institutions to realise that the relationship they have with the person who brings around the tea and biscuits, the person who cleans mm. the place, can be just as important as the highly skilled doctors and nurses who are caring for it. That was a, a tragic story, obviously, about your daughter, but it was also a lovely story, and thank you very much. And how it's actually moved on to the rest mm. of the family. Mm. And um, some lovely people saying, you know, I think I know Dr Lionel Lubitz myself, and the work that he's done over the years. And continues to and do. And continues to do. Thank you, Andrew, so much for that call. We really appreciated it. And we've been joined in the studio by a woman called Lib Haywood. Now, just a bit of Lib's background. She was diagnosed back in 2000 with something called chronic myeloid leukemia. And she underwent arduous treatment for partial remission, but then relapsed again in 2007. But it was going through the treatment of that particular disease and witnessing the effect of this on not just herself but on her family that made her passionate about providing ready access to any information to help others managing the psychological aspects of cancer. And I say psychological in capital letters if there's such a thing in order to do that. I'm really pleased to say that she's with us tonight to talk about psycho-oncology. Hello, Lib. Welcome along. Thanks, Lindy. And thanks for coming all the way from Launceston to join us. Not that it's a very long way, but, you know, it's closer than either of these two have had to come tonight. Uh, so thank you so much for coming in. Psycho-oncology, I guess it's just an amalgam of psychology and oncology, but it sounds like it's a very new field. How long have you been working in it for? Um, I've been working in this area for a, a good 10 years. Um, the area of psycho-oncology, it sounds like a big word and it's a long word, but basically means that when somebody's diagnosed with cancer, obviously the medical treatment is the foremost thing that needs to happen. But anybody diagnosed with cancer, it happens to them and it affects every part of their life and every part of their being. So it also affects their lifestyle, it affects their social support system and um, it also has... For for many people, mental health issues. It doesn't mean that they necessarily develop a severe mental health issue, but things like worry and feeling anxious and depressed and uncertain and even traumatised sometimes are quite common things for people to feel. Sorry, I was just going to jump in there and just say, so at what point in that, I'm going to use the word journey and I hate using it Mm -hmm. when it comes to cancer, but Mm -hmm. you know, at what point in, in that time that somebody, from the time that they are, diagnosed to the time that they either go into remission or sadly they may lose their lives at what point do you see something like psycho-oncology having its best possible work doing its best possible work 
I don't think there's really any um, cut and dried time. I think everybody's situation is different and everybody comes to a diagnosis of cancer from a different situation. Sometimes people have a lot of social support, some people, some people have none. Sometimes people are already well, sometimes people already have a variety of what we call comorbidities, so other other illnesses. Yeah. So um, it really depends how the person is when they come to you. And um, depending on that, depends on who who, um, actually comes in at that point to help the person and their family. Liv, do you think the the typical cancer patient feels that that the medical team looking after them is only looking at part of them, you know, looking at the particular issue with the cancer, not necessarily looking at their mental health or their physical well-being, I mean, is there a need for a, a more holistic way of dealing with cancer patients? Because wouldn't traditional medical treatment just be focused on dealing with the cancer and nothing much else? Yeah, but most people, when they're treated in hospital, will be treated by an interdisciplinary team. So there'll be social workers, there'll be nurses, um, there will be people there. They're often referred to what's called an exercise physiologist to get some sort of physical activity um, happening for them, which we know can benefit people with cancer. Um, so people are often part um, seen as part of a multidisciplinary team. So it's not just the medical team who obviously have the first input, but after that the person is often sort of referred out, referred on to and, other people. And what about the GP, Nick? Do you think the GP should continue to see patients after a diagnosis like that? I think one of the points you're making is very important that um, specialists, by definition, specialise in bits of the body and cancer or radiation treatment or chemotherapy. Uh, I think it's very, very helpful for people to have someone more generalist involved. And I think this is a very important role for GPs. I think this is where counsellors and psychologists can also be enormously helpful to keep the whole person in mind. I, I, want, to, I want to come because you've, you've actually written this lovely little book about this and we'll come to why you've called it this uh, book called the, the Hero's Journey but um, one of the things you talk about in the book uh, which is something which comes up again and again with patients is the question of prognosis so you're given the diagnosis the C word is brought out and one of the first things that people say even if they they think it, and often they say it is, how long have I got, Doc? And you talk about this in the book. How do people deal with that, the prognosis question? Well, I think part of the difficulty is that when you're given a diagnosis of cancer, every part of your body is heightened, all your senses are heightened, um, you're very much on edge, and you do take in information that you're given, but often it's information that can be quite selective and is focused on particular issues like what is this person telling me? Are they telling me that I've got long to live? Um, and quite often the information that we take in gets sort of whirled around in our minds. And I think when people say, some people will ask, how long have I got? But quite a lot of people don't want to know. Um, and it is a bit like pointing the bone because really you can give a guesstimate, but that's about the best you can do. And one of the things that oncologists say is if you say, well, you know, ballpark, you know, it could be 12 months, but it might only be three. And all people hear is three months. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And for people with, I think, that shorter time frame, they probably do because um, some people obviously at that point need to do some things if they really have only got three months or it's, it's really that serious. Then there are things they need to do compared to someone who gets something more chronic where you... Uh, and I've specifically called the book um, Living with Blood Cancer because I think blood cancers do have a slightly different um, 
um, pathway because often people will um, remit um, and that does happen in many cancers but I think for some of the blood cancers that is sort of part of the expectation. So to me, I've got a friend going through this at the moment and one of the things I realise even as a medical person and as a reasonably sensible adult is I don't know what the most helpful way is to deal with this with him. When this is going on six months, 12 months, do you say to someone, if you, how are you? Um, over do and we, over again. Yes. Do you yeah. say that every time or do you just talk about the football and then you think, oh, I'm just being another bloke who can't even think about this. Do you have any tips for friends, family members about how to help, what the right way is of dealing with this conversation? I think one of the things is probably to make statements rather than ask questions. So people will often say, how are you? What did they say? Where are you up to? How's the treatment going? And you just don't want to say it because you've already said it 50 times. And I think statements like, good to see you, um, uh, something like that, I think for people is, um, is really much more helpful. Um, something that suggests that you're pleased to see them. Um, and then it's a bit like following their lead. If they want to tell you stuff, they will. If they don't want to tell you anymore, they won't. Um, but I think some of the things that we can do that are real no-nos are telling people the latest cure that we've heard mm. about. <laughs> or our friend. You mean that's not appreciated? <laughs> <laughs> or our friend who had a similar thing but they died mm. or they didn't do okay. Um, can you ask them directly, do you want to talk about what's going on in terms of the illness or do you, do you will we just have a cup of tea and, and talk fashion you know do, do you do you be as direct as that i think that one thing that people appreciate is honesty and i think that asking that if you're close to them i think it does matter sort of how far further out you yeah, go yeah if you're an acquaintance i think that people can find that quite intrusive absolutely um, but I think if you're close to them it's a matter of asking them and following their lead about what they want to talk about but often people just want some normality they don't want the pity party they just want someone to actually tell them about what's happening at work or down the street Lib Haywood is our guest. She's a psychologist who specialises in psycho-oncology. It's off the back, not only, but partially off the back of her own experience with leukaemia that she was diagnosed with back in 2000. I just want to read a couple of texts out before we go any further. Um, this is off the back of the conversation we had in the first part of uh, Ritz and Cures tonight. Um, I've just received this text, which I, I must read out. Lindy, after playing Alex Lloyd's Amazing, which you did about 15 minutes ago, uh, it's our son Stephen's 23rd birthday today. He died 22 years ago, and that song is him. That's from Sue. Mm. That's, um, that's incredibly moving. Thank you very much for that. Uh, and Chris saying, my daughter is a lymphoma, meningitis, and quarter equine syndrome saviour. Feel blessed, says Chris. So it sounds like she came through the other side. Is that what Chris is saying? I wonder if that was um, texting for, for survivor. Survivor, I yeah. I think yeah. survivor yeah, yeah. Is, is the word that he was, he was trying to say. And yeah. um, a couple of other people who are commenting on the role that Lib is playing in, well, not her specifically, but people like her in, in, uh, in their diagnosis and in their lives. And I'm wondering, Lib, how much your personal experience has has fed into the ability that you obviously have in order to provide this kind of service. What did you, going through that treatment and seeing the effect that it had on you personally and indeed on your family, how has that 
uh, made you a, a better communicator and a better person to understand what it is that that people who ha- are diagnosed with cancer are going through? I think um, for me, I think I probably understand some of the nuances. My story is not everybody's story who's had cancer um, and I'm certainly not suggesting that it is and the book is not my story. It's about the sorts of things that people can go through. But I think that um, it gave me an idea about the nuances, the little things that people often may not be aware of um, that happens for people who've got cancer. And I think it also gave me... um, the ability to, I remember one day having to sort of look out the window and say, okay, what's the worst that could happen? And I thought, well, the worst that could happen is I could die. And I thought, no, that's not the worst that could happen. The worst that could happen is I could leave my family. And I think it gave me an appreciation of the fact that there's so much connected to this in terms of your family and the people around you and what you mean to them and what they mean to you and life itself, I guess. Yeah. As a, you're a trained clinical psychologist, um, I just want to sort of get back to the point I was making before. You, someone who's going through treatment, going in and out, having chemo for a couple of weeks, coming home, going back in, uh, might be on a clinical trial or whatever. Um, who's watching out for signs of depression, for example, in all that process? I mean, the, the treating team only see them while they're in having the treatment. I know you've got, you say there's a multidisciplinary team, but... When the treatment's going on a day-to-day basis, that isn't always the case. Often it's the partner at home or the family that have to keep it. But do you find in your practice that there's a role for someone like you as a clinical psychologist to pick that up and to offer strategies for dealing with it? Uh, Absolutely, and I think often that gets picked up by the GP if the person is seeing the GP because the thing with the GP is compared to a specialist is often the GP, particularly in Tasmania, has known the person and their family for a long, long time. And I think the GP can see something's not quite right here. Sometimes you're right, it's a busy hospital, um, it, things get missed, there's no two ways. So we can be actually feeding into social work or to the specialist or the GP and saying, look, this person's not travelling well. And I think we can have a role in terms of actually highlighting that for people because you're right, things do get missed. Going back, though, to the conversation we had in the first part of this program tonight, which is, you know, that sometimes the patient themselves goes, I, I don't want that treatment. Mm. So even though you may look at somebody and say, I can see that person is in trouble psychologically, let's put aside the physiological effects of the disease, I can see them in trouble psychologically, but they want nothing to do with They want, don't want to acknowledge that. They're just sort of just dr- dragging themselves through the treatment and just everything else can just go to hell. What do you do in that circumstance? And quite often you'll see a family member who will come in and say, this person's just become impossible or we can't talk about it or our marriage is really falling apart. And it's quite often that you see people not so much for the cancer but the impact that the cancer is actually having on the person and their family. And that can be quite serious if there are already sort of cracks in the marriage. This really strains it because communication is such a key issue. And that gets very difficult when one doesn't want to talk about it and the other person is desperate for some information about how they're travelling. So your support then goes towards the family member or, the, or even the close friend Absolutely. rather than the patient themselves. If the patient doesn't want to attend, for sure. Yeah. You talk a lot in the book about communication. It reminded me very much of when my wife was pregnant the first time. I was very anxious because medical family and she was too aware of what could go wrong. And I was always saying, well, we could have this blood test or we could go and do this. And, and she got so cross me. And I said, what do you want me to do? She said, just shut up, make a cup of tea and give me a cuddle. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, Uh-oh. shut up, 
tea cuddle. <laughs> I, I can, I can mm. do that. Mm. But mm. I had no idea that's what she was needing. Now, you talk a bit about this in the book, about mm. the difference between how men and women deal. Do you want to just expand on that? Because it's lovely how you talk about this. I, I do. I think it's really interesting. Men, men and women's brains are different. Uh, we're wired differently. And I'm not going to enter the conversation about who's the brightest because <laughs> people always come up with that. But it's more about the wiring's different and the socialisation is different. So for men, it's terribly difficult. I think that they sit back and they just feel so helpless. And there's a sense of what can I do? And it's always about the what can I do? How can I fix it? And of course you can't. So for to say to, to particularly a male, and I know I'm making big generalisations here, just to sit with them, just to listen, just to watch a TV program, just to make them a cup of tea and guys say... That's not going to help. And it's like it really is because what you're doing is actually just being with them. And um, for many women, it's a bit like they want to talk. Why can't you tell me how you are? And he's sort of saying, I don't know. Like he doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah. And so she's badgering, badgering. And the more she does that, the more he withdraws. Of course. And there's a sense there that you've just got two people on trying to do the best for each other but actually working at it from the wrong end. So um, a lot of those things can be sort of talked about in terms of other ways to do it so that they actually get what they want, which is to feel a bit closer and support it. I'd imagine in some circumstances, and maybe I'm just being a bit of a Pollyanna here, but it can draw people together because Mm. it kind of forces them to have conversations that perhaps they would not have had in the past because things would have just rolled along like they were. They were in in patterns and habits that, that had established years ago and and then suddenly something like this comes along and as you say if there are cracks sometimes it can they can broaden but at, at times it can, it can provide some cement just to draw that analogy out as far as i can um sometimes it can because it, i think it makes a family realize that they do have to pull together depending on what's happening and then people have to step into practical roles like taking people to chemo treatment that sort of thing um but a lot of people don't have that sort of social support no. so that's when it gets quite difficult but how was your family when the diagnosis came you know you've got a a son who's now in med school you've got you know a, a, pra- a professional partner as well um and how did he react I mean, what's your experience of that as a you know in the family what do you think it was good ultimately a good thing for the family to bind them together or do you think it put enormous strains on the family um, I think for my immediate family, I know my husband felt completely helpless. He just did not know what he could do because he couldn't fix it. Um, mm. Our son was only seven, and I think he just knew something was wrong. But because of the prognosis I'd been given, I think I was in shell shock. And I think I did not at that point sort of really talk with him about it. I actually don't remember a lot about that time. Mm. It was so um, pretty drastic. And I think my parents, I was I was urged immediately to go and tell my parents, and I knew that my parents would not cope, and they didn't. Mm. They didn't cope with the news. It was just too much. Mm. So they would just sort of tiptoe around it. And I think um, people just didn't ask. But this is 17 years ago, and things are different now. If, if I'm allowed um, mm. a little leeway, I've met your son, Angus, as a <laughs> medical student now. And if ever there was an advertisement for someone who's come through this okay, he's a fantastic young man and will be a wonderful doctor one day. So. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're preaching to the converted here, I think. <laughs> well, I thought I could say that. Despite <laughs> a week with Dr. Carr. <laughs> I, I want to ask you, because one of the things you talk about in the book, which I was very struck by, was the role of mindfulness. And a lot of psychologists these days are very 
keen on mm. mindfulness. Do mm. you want to talk a little bit about what you feel its role is, particularly in this area of, of psycho-oncology? Well, one of the big things that happens for people is when you get a diagnosis of something like cancer, there's the worry and there's the overthinking. It just never stops, particularly at 2 o'clock in the morning. Cancer is actually a pretty lonely journey for a lot of people. You feel quite invisible. People will actually turn away from you when they see you. It, it can be very hurtful for a lot of people. People don't know what to say as you raise Nick, so they don't say anything. That can happen for people. So mindfulness is a time when it's a practice that um, you can actually employ to bring you back to what is actually happening here and now. Not what might happen, what has happened, but it's actually down to the here and now. And it's also teaching you to accept just what is happening in the moment and, and being aware of that. A lot of the time our head is diverted to um, other things that uh, concerns and worries which um, usually never eventuate yes. and we can fill up a lot of the airtime in our brain with all of that. Do, do you need a professional to help you with that? Because, I mean, there are workplaces I've been in where mindfulness was offered to mm. the staff. Mm. I mean, do you need... I mean, it's very hard if someone doesn't know what you've just explained to actually put themselves in that position. Do you recommend that they that you know they seek professional help to actually develop a, 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 a mindfulness regime? I, I think there are different accredited programs where people can learn about mindfulness. Um, I don't think you necessarily have to go to a psychologist, but I think you certainly have to understand the benefit of mindfulness. And I think, unfortunately, in some of these workplaces and different things, it's just applied as here's a skill. And no one really sort of talks about what the purpose of it or how it can benefit you. But, yeah, I think if you're getting some sort of accredited um, program there, generally it should be reasonable. I want to read a few texts uh, just off, off the back of that conversation. One that says, as well as the support services and things that have been mentioned already, there's also a network of wellness centres which are attached to oncology, oncology hospitals. In Ballarat, this includes shiatsu, oncology massage, reiki, art therapy, meditation and yoga, all provided as complementary and integrated healthcare free for the patients. So this is obviously happening mm. more and more. Mm. And a, a longer text that I'll take a little bit of time to read from Sharon. I found that I had guilt and psychological feedback loops of stress and worry re my anxiety around my stage one breast cancer diagnosis. When I had a friend who had stage three breast cancer who was in a far worse state and then passed away. How dare I feel so stressed, I thought. I also wanted to disengage from the pink world of breast cancer because I felt that I was not relating to those in a higher stage of diagnosis and felt terrible guilt about that disengagement. I needed head space time where that pink topic was not dominating my life to manage my anxiety that it might come back that's from Sharon you're not you're nodding so much there mm, Lib. Mm. so that resonates with yeah you. I think the fear of reoccurrence is probably the biggest fear people have will it come back and if it does what will happen will I be okay will my family be okay will I die I think that and it's really interesting there's now some really good research that's being done about that and um, the fear of recurrence is one of the biggest issues that people have. There's a final text that uh, there's some swearing in it but I won't read out but this says not everybody has uh, not everyone who's dying beep has a beep family and it's a really good point though which is not yeah not everybody who finds themselves in these situations has mm. any kind of support mm. network or mm. if they have one it's through a through friendship and mm. the and the strain that it can put on a friendship I think is mm. every bit as real as a strain mm. as it can be uh, put on a family absolutely and and in fact when you read people's blogs they say you know friends don't come near me and I actually get helped by the people that I least expected and then those friends that I've been 
been friends with for years expected all to go back to the way it was. But she's quite right, and that's why I said earlier, you move from people who've got a really strong support network to people who've got no one. And quite, I, I quite often see people who literally have no one. Yeah, but, but they have you. They have, they have me, but I can't take them to chemo treatment. I can't be there when they get home and they haven't got the energy to lift their hand up to do more than get inside the door. Yeah. Lip, I want to ask you, you, you called the book Hero's Journey, mm. which made me wince when I first heard that mm. title. Yes. Uh, but when I read why, it made sense. Do you want to explain why you chose that title? Can I just jump in as a person who's the timekeeper here? We've got about a minute. <laughs> okay. So the hero, I use the word here. There's a lot of language that is really um, disliked around cancer, things like um, battle, survivor, yeah. journey. Um, I chose the hero because not so much that people are hero, but the qualities that a hero needs, like patience, persistence, endurance, are very much required when you go through cancer. I chose the word journey to mean something that doesn't have an end point, something that isn't linear, it isn't predictable. Um, I know it's a much disliked word, but for me, it actually fitted. Uh, I could have used the word travels, but it didn't seem to work. I where, think where, it's do a we get the book? where do we get the book, Lib? Um, you can get the book from um, my website, libhayward.com.au. Is that um, one word, Lib Hayward? Yes, it yeah. is. Right. And H E Y W A R D. That's right. Mm. Yep. And um, it's on the website, and uh, also you can get it from um, bookshops like Dimmock's, which uh, it's available there too. All power to you. Thank, Thank you, you so very much for coming in and sharing a bit of that with us tonight. And to those texts I didn't get to, my apologies. As always, Nick Carr, lovely to see you. Lovely to see you. Thanks, Lindy. And Bill O'Shea, thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Lindy. 